0: This is The Restoration Project, a young church planted in Salisbury, Maryland. We'd love for you to join us for worship sometime. We meet Sundays at 5.30 p.m. at 1401 Camden Avenue. Our current message series is going through the Gospel of Mark. Let's join Pastor Josh James as he continues to explore this Gospel. This is week seven of our study in the book of Mark. Uh, we have seen the prologue of that verse of that book in the first 16 verses setting um this story of Jesus as one who comes proclaiming the kingdom, a kingdom that is here, a kingdom that is now, a kingdom that begins to come to fruition through his person and his work. And we've seen how that transitions in the book of Mark in specific ways where Jesus begins to heal and teach as one that has authority and not like the scribes and the Pharisees and not like other Jewish teachers at the time. Jesus is separating himself from the pack both in word and also in deed, his healing ministry, his exorcism of demons, folks that that showed up wanting to um, be reintroduced to the community, Jesus was providing them with life and hope and peace in very physical and tangible ways. This was not just a message of close your eyes, bow your heads, raise a hand if you want to get saved. It was a message of complete and utter transformation. People were being asked to join something, to partner with Jesus in this mission. And we'll see how this shows itself throughout the book of Mark. But over this this first chapter, this introductory chapter, we've seen Jesus uh, seemingly waging war against uh, forces of demonic oppression, healing folks who are sick, and proclaiming a radical message of hope. So, jumping into chapter 2, we're going to look at how this story progresses. This is Mark chapter 2, verse 1. It says, A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they could not took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. The word of God for the people of God. Here in Mark chapter 2, we begin to see something a bit different than we've seen in Mark chapter 1. It's for intro to literary students, is that if that's a class, I don't think it is, but anyone who's taken a class on narrative structure or a a class on story, even in high school, has probably seen a chart similar to this. We have the exposition or the setting or the, the prelude to the story. This is where you get to know the characters. This is where you get to see what they're about. This is where you get to kind of feel the lay of the land and what's about to happen. In any good story, whether it's a film or a book, there's something that takes place that causes the, the main characters in this story a bit of um, difficulty, perhaps, something that they need to overcome. There's this rising action that leads up to a climax. When the climax is finally reached, we see uh, the falling action. Things become to come back into place. This is like the end of the Full House episode when Bob Saget is on the bed talking to Michelle or Stephanie or DJ, and they cue the heartwarming music. This is like the falling action leading to the denouement you got to kind of put some stuff in your cheeks there to say the, the, the denouement. Um, it's, the, it's the conclusion or the resolution of the story. And we've seen in, in Mark chapter 1 who Jesus is, what Jesus is all about, this announcement of the kingdom being here and the miracles and the healings that are taking place. But now in chapter 2, there's a turn. Up to this point, pretty much everyone that Jesus has interacted with has accepted him. They have um, acknowledged his his power and his his goodness. But here in chapter 2, there's a shift that begins to take place. And over the next chapter and a half, we see Jesus facing conflict. In particular, Jesus is facing conflict from the Pharisees, the scribes, the religious leaders of that day who become Jesus' major opponents in how this story plays out. These are the people that want to do away with Jesus as we begin to see. And we can see that in these five stories that we'll look at over the next couple of weeks, they're all structured around a question that begins, why? In Mark chapter 2, verse 6, we hear the religious leaders saying, why does this fellow talk like that? I love the, the new NIV translation of that. It's very British. Why does this fellow talk like that? Why, in the next story, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? These are things that kept folks up at night. Why is Jesus doing things that are different than what we've seen and what we've heard and what we can expect? Why is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours, Jesus, are not? Why is that the case? Why are your um, disciples doing what is unlawful by picking grain and eating it on the Sabbath? We see some some themes that are coming to fruition in this chapter and a half where Folks are beginning to ask critical questions of Jesus, putting him under the microscope and asking, what is going on? Why are you doing these things? And how does this fit into your your major message? How this culminates in this um, portion of the book of Mark is this. In Mark chapter 3, verse 6, it says, then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Seems innocent enough, we have questions laced throughout these five stories, and at the end, these folks have had have just had it with Jesus so much so that they want him to die. Joel Marcus says that this is demonstrating not just Jesus and his opponents as human beings, the teachers of the law, but beyond that, it's a supernatural conflict that's taking place, where in the first chapter, we've seen Jesus casting out demons, and we've seen this um, spiritual warfare that's going on. And, and as the demon-possessed guy showed up to Jesus in, in the middle part of chapter one, it says, have you come here to destroy us? And we've talked over the last couple of weeks how the underlying implicit answer to that question is, yes, absolutely, I have come to destroy you. And for, for Joel Marcus, it sets up a tension in the book that goes beyond the Pharisees and the religious leaders and the folks that he can see and, and feel and touch and, and interact with. It's going into a spiritual Oppression. It says, though routed for the moment by Jesus' exorcisms and healings, the demons now counteract through human instruments. Now, I don't know where you're at with um, spiritual warfare and things that go beyond what we can see, but just think about that phrase for a second. The demons now counterattack through human instruments, through people the ones who ask questions of Jesus and and eventually want him to die. It says, now, the demons were counteracting uh, through human instruments, perhaps with special fierceness because they know that Jesus has been sent to destroy them and their time is short. For those of you in the room, like these sorts of themes that are present in the book of Mark, remember this is a first century Jewish story about a carpenter turned rabbi who was changing the world. These sorts of themes of demon oppression and exorcism and spiritual forces, it made sense for them. In our context, I think many of us sit here and say, Okay. We're at a different place in time now, and I don't know if I can necessarily buy into that. I want to like just put that on hold for a second and introduce a, a maybe a different theme, maybe one that's more acceptable for you in this in this moment. Uh, this is from NT Wright. It says the story in Mark two one through twelve is a signpost. It points on through the twists and the turns of the gospel story to Jesus' trial before Caiaphas in chapter fourteen. We see that these folks who are beginning to to test Jesus and his teachings, the ones who would set out to plot to kill him, how that whole plan comes to fruition. And we see, as Mark, being a brilliant storyteller, he's laying down these breadcrumbs that are leading us to that moment. Jesus' crucifixion does not come out of nowhere. It's been set up very intentionally throughout this book, where we see Mark kind of putting, putting this on. This story that we're looking at today is a foreshadowing of what happens as the very climax of this book. The story is a tiny version of the whole gospel. It's Jesus teaching and healing. It's Jesus being condemned for blasphemy. It's Jesus being vindicated in front of his peers and in front of his audience. We see this in a very small segment in this text, but we see it on full as the gospel is laid out before us. Death, resurrection, New life. There's a couple of themes that, that come out of this story. and I just want to kind of call our attention to a couple of them. One is this amount of fame and notoriety that Jesus is, is drumming up in the surrounding regions. When people figure out where it is that he's going, they want to be where he is. He is not isolating, he is not ostracizing at this point. People just want to be wherever he is because they want to see what he's going to do. They want to see the, the ridiculous miracles that he might. Um, enact or the teachings that have this authority that's different than everyone else. They wanted to see and be a part of what was going on. It says a few days later when Jesus again entered to Capernaum, this is where he's staying. This is home base for him. It says the people heard that he had come home. People differ on whose house this is. I even heard one commentator say that this is actually Jesus's house, which makes it a whole lot more interesting when folks begin to rip the roof apart and somebody's dropped down and Jesus kind of Smiles. Okay, I get you. You're forgiven it's okay. The hole in the wall, it's, it's fine. Um, more likely, it's probably Peter's house. And this is, this is where home base is. But either way, when people figure out where Jesus is, they go to him and they want to be where he is. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. The word there is symbolic again of this kingdom that was not somewhere in the future. It was happening right here, right now through Jesus in a very surprising way. There's a couple of different types of people that go to concerts. One type of person that goes to concerts is that person where you've been camped out in your spot, standing there, and they show up at the very last minute, and they just butt their way through, and they work the crowd till they get to the the front of the stage. You all know those people? Two of you, maybe? You've been there? Megan might be one of those persons, I'm not sure. Kate and I were seeing Bruce Springsteen about uh, two years ago. And we had been standing in line from about 1 o'clock on because Bruce was doing this lottery so that if you stood in line, you had a ticket, and you might be able to get like orchestra-type seats. like You'd get really close to the boss, which would have not really been fair because at the time, Kate knew maybe one of his songs, I think. So for us to be up front, it would have really been uh, not fair for the the true Bruce fans. But we had been standing from about 1 o'clock until he went on um, that night, and he went on about 9 o'clock. Now, we did not win the lottery, but we did have floor seats. And you know that floor seats, it's like elbows up. You got to get people out of the way. You got to make sure you can have your, your spot. So Kate and I had had this spot for an hour, hour and a half, whatever. We'd been planted there. We'd been sitting there. We'd been waiting. And then when the concert happened, this guy shows up with his crew of people. And this guy is like 6'5", six, 6'6". And somehow he, he weasels his way through the crowd and stands right in front of my wife. I'm thinking in my mind, this is not going to go well because Kate at that moment in life had been, you know, standing for six or seven hours and wasn't really in the most um, godly of attitudes. So for Kate, Elbow, I believe the quote was, oh, I see elbow up in the back of this guy, just kind of letting him know that she's there and you can't mess with her because she wants to see Bruce Springsteen. I'm standing behind Kate because I'm taller than her and I'm thinking, this is not going to go well. (laughs) And on cue, guy turns around and says something to the effect of, you better watch your woman. Now, I'm a pacifist at heart. I think that, you know, I'm a lover, not a fighter. And it, was, it became a time for me to express my displeasure for his wordings to my wife through the, the power that is rhetoric. Um, <laughs> and I said something. But, like, there's, there's those people that kind of make life miserable for you in those really tight quarters. When I think about this house being um, filled up to the max and having people show up and look in and have all the folks there... I know that I'd probably be one of the people that just doesn't want to mess with it. Like, I'm just fine kind of hanging out in the back. As long as I can hear things, I'm fine. I don't need to be super close. I definitely don't need to have an elbow in the in the rib cage of the guy in front of me or things like that. So, but there are those people. And I think that the crew that we're about to meet here are the people that if there was a concert going on, they would skillfully weave themselves in and out to get to the very front. And we see how this works out for them in this text. There's an obstacle for these folks that are coming to bring their friend, hopefully to get healed. It says, some men came bringing to him, to Jesus, a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Uh, In the Greek and in the English, this sentence is just really strangely worded, but you get the point. There's four guys and they're carrying this pallet this wooden kind of mat type thing where a paralyzed guy is laying there, unable to move. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof. Literally, it says they unroofed the roof. They unroofed the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. And either way, whoever's house this is, these guys say, "Um, there's a crowd here, there's an obstacle uh, let's go on the side of the building and go up there and unroof the roof. Pretty, uh, pretty courageous, I guess you could say. Um, a typical roof at this time was made of wooden beams placed across stone or mud brick walls. The beams were covered with reeds and matted layers of thorns and several, several inches of clay. It might look something similar to this. We have no idea if this, sto- this house was one story or two. Um, both were common at this time. But you can see here like these wooden beams. Yeah, that's a, that's a laser pointer. These wooden beams here and then some sort of a thatch type roofing, whether it's twigs or um, sticks or thorns. Um, and then on top of that, some sort of a clay uh, that, would, that would be your roof. And off to the side here, you see this ladder. So most houses would have this ladder so you could get up there and fix things if it needed to be fixed, if it needed to patch it or whatever. And these guys saw the ladder and took um, hold of the moment. They seized the day. They yolo if you will. And they went up to the top and began to create a hole so that this guy uh, could be lowered down into it so that Jesus would do something. There's stories like this throughout the Gospels where there's an obstacle that's keeping the person from having Jesus um, meet that need, and it's an obstacle that needs to be overcome. And for these guys, it was, we're going to get this guy in there, come hell or high water, and we're going to um, present Jesus with an opportunity to heal, What's interesting about this story, and I know for for the Christian crowd and the church crowd, you've heard this before, the wording is when Jesus saw their faith. He's not looking at the faith of the paralyzed guy on the mat. He's looking at the faith of the four, perhaps still perched on the roof and now peering in saying, are you down there? Are you okay? Is everything good? And Jesus seeing their faith and how, uh, how much resolve they had to move heaven and earth to get their friend before someone that could do something about it. When Jesus saw their faith, he does something really strange. He says, he said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. And collectively, I just imagine the four on top of the roof saying, what the? No, heal him. Forgiveness, that's great, but heal him. We want him to walk. It's an odd story how Jesus just kind of sees this man being lowered down. Recognizes the faith of his friends, perhaps including the paralyzed man as well, and saying, There's something bigger going on here that I want you to be aware of. Your sins are forgiven. This was not um, something that people did. This was not common. This was, uh, for a lot of folks, this would be a moment that was. A watershed moment where someone forgiving sins that would be emblematic of this kingdom yet again showing up and being present and Jesus saying, it's here to a degree that you guys don't quite understand. Jesus sees their faith and says, son, your sins are forgiven. It occasions uh, his Jesus's opponent's cries of blasphemy. It says, now some teachers of the law, the scribes, who are oftentimes linked with the Pharisees, they were sitting there and they were thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? What in the world is this guy doing? It seems really tame, but there's an incensed um, moment in these guys' disposition where it's like, you, you can't say that, you can't do that. That clenched teeth, clenched fists like fury is about to erupt. Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? This episode makes me think of a movie in recent past, a movie that some of you have seen, a movie that some of you probably have not seen based on your own um, spiritual scruples. But I will play you a clip from this movie uh, this evening to hopefully get you into this first century world to help you understand blasphemy and what's going on in this particular text. Oh, but thus, son of Deuteronomy of Gath, you have been found guilty by the elders of the town of uttering the name of our Lord, and so as a blasphemer, you are to be stoned to death. Look, I'd had a lovely supper, and all I said to my wife was that piece of halibut was good enough for Jehovah. Yes for me! He said it again! Did you hear him? Are there any women here today? Very well. By virtue of the authority. Oh, lay off! We haven't started yet! Come on! Who's through that? Who's through that, Sam? Come on! Sorry, I thought... We started. Go to the back. Oh, always wonderful. Now, where were we? Look, I don't think it ought to be blasphemy. Just saying, Jehovah... (laughs) Oh! Are you making it worse for yourself? Making it worse? How could it be worse? Jehovah, Jehovah! Jehovah! I'm warning you, if you say Jehovah once more! Right! Who through that? Come on! who threw that? Was it you? Yes. Right! We well, did say Jehovah! <laughs> Stop, stop, will you? Stop that. Stop it. Now look, no one is to stone anyone until I blow this whistle, do you understand? Even, and I want to make this absolutely clear, even if they do say Jehovah. <laughs> Let's pray. <laughs> the, the question is, how, how is this guy saying these things? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God? And it seems as though Jesus is um, putting himself in a, in a different category. Now, at the time, there was a couple of different things that could uh, bring about that accusation of blasphemy. One is, like we saw here, just saying the divine name out loud could have been uh, viewed as an offense um, but we also see Jesus putting himself on par with God as something that at the time, folks hearing this and seeing how this unfold would would be very quick to accuse him of blasphemy, claiming to be something that he most assuredly could not be, which leads Jesus to kind of put these folks on blast a bit. Um, in the NIV, it says Jesus perceiving the thoughts of these people. It's as if that in this moment, Jesus is... Hearing the thoughts go through their mind, Um, the more I read this text, the more it seems like it would be patently obvious what these people are thinking as they're sitting there fuming. Um, But we do see Jesus kind of figuring out what 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 they're thinking, and he says, "Why are you guys thinking these things?" Which is easier to say to this paralyzed man, "Your sins are forgiven," or to say, "Get up, take your mat." And walk. There's a couple of different ways you can see this. In, in one sense, it's quite easy to say your sins are forgiven because nobody knows whether or not that has actually taken place. In another sense, theologically, to say something like that would be would be quite difficult because no one can forgive sins but God Himself. But here, Jesus is trying to turn this on its head by saying, "I'll demonstrate something that you believe to be more difficult than this forgiveness, and I will." show to you the power that I have. He goes on, but I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Get up, take your mat, and go home. Jesus here is separating himself from from what people were expecting. They're seeing this man teach things where he has authority over... um, over the other teachers of the law, he's presenting something that's, that's radically different than others had been presenting at this time. He's performing miracles and exercising demons and he's showing himself to be much more powerful than anyone else. And here, even in this line, he once again is separating himself from the pack. This, this claim to being the son of man would have had huge uh, implications for an ancient audience. This is the person that they were waiting, um, to show up on the scene. You guys remember Sesame Street where they used to sing that song? One of these things is not like the other. One of these things is just not the same. That melody's all jacked up, I'm pretty sure of it. But like <laughs> dipping back into my 27 year ago childhood, I remember these, these things where they were trying to get little kids to figure out which one of these things doesn't fit. And in this moment, Jesus is sort of proclaiming himself to not fit to not be like everyone else, to be something different than, to be something better than, to be uh, someone that is teaching something that's new and life-giving and freeing and filled with hope. It says in Daniel 7, this is where this idea of son of man language is tied to in the Old Testament. Um, This is N.T. Wright. In Daniel 7, one like a son of man is the representative of God's true people. He is opposed by forces of evil, but God vindicates him, rescues him, proves him to be in the right, and gives him authority. In Daniel, this authority that the son of man has enables him to dispense God's judgment. But here in Mark, there's a fascinating twist that takes place. The son of man has authority to dispense God's forgiveness. One of these things is not like the other. Everything that the people in that, in that time frame had been waiting for and looking for and hoping for, Jesus was different and better in providing something that was uh, life-giving. There's a couple ways that we can apply this text, um, just thinking through the narrative and thinking through the story. The first is to uh, learn from the five, that being the four guys who are carrying the paralyzed guy and then the actual the paralyzed guy on, on the mat. It seems as though in this story that nothing was going to stop them from, from being in front of Jesus, from taking their friend who needed help to be in the presence of Jesus, Just from a straight moralistic reading of this story, we can see that there's something to be learned there where it's a bit different than when God closes a door, he opens a window. It's when God closes the door, you lower your shoulder and you barrel it over. The way that these folks were praying and the way that these folks were living and the things that they were trying to set up for their friend, it was nothing was going to stop them from gaining an audience with Jesus. It puts into perspective the way that we pray. It puts into perspective the way that we think. It puts into perspective the way that we think about miracles and healing and all these sorts of things where oftentimes we are not as persistent as we could be, where we're not potentially as devoted as we should be, where we're not advocating for our friends and people that we know that need help like we could be. In this story, we see that the faith of these guys was pleasing to Jesus. I don't want us to get too far over here where we make faith that determining factor on the good things that happen in your life. But I do at least want us to be over here comfortable with this idea that we need to be diligent in asking, we need to be diligent in seeking, and we need to be open to dreaming big dreams and letting God show himself to be powerful. There's things that we can also learn um, from the scribes, and particularly this is one that is a negative example as you might expect. In this setting, the scribes had determined and dictated what God was able to do and and how that was supposed to play itself out in their everyday life. And again, oftentimes um, we take ourselves out of the game before the game even starts. We take others out of the game before they even have a chance to get in it. We make value judgments and decisions on who's in and who's out. We play God in many ways where we determine who is worthy to get what or this or that or the other thing. Sometimes that's us pointing the finger over there saying those people shouldn't get this. But sometimes, and I would say probably more often, it's us saying I'm not good enough. That thing that I did, there's no way on earth that anyone would forgive me. This situation and how I've demonstrated myself to be sinful is, is an understatement at best. And we play the role of God, and we don't allow ourselves to receive mercy and grace and forgiveness, and we don't allow ourselves to be vessels that God can use in, in great ways. I see this as clear as day in my role as a teacher at Salisbury Christian School because every student there that has been churched and just inundated with the things of Jesus, they begin to play favorites and say, that's the good person and I'm not. Therefore, Jesus can't work through me and in my life. And I don't think that that's limited to high school. I think that as we sit here right now, you might be sitting there thinking, there's certain things that I can't do. I could never speak. I could never um, work in the kids ministry. I could never um, minister to this person or that person. You'd be surprised how often I say, in our longing to be an intergenerational church with folks from all different age demographics, and how people that are old want to hang out with with young college kids. How many times um, those older people would say, "Yeah, but they don't want to hang out with me. What is what? What can I do for them?" why would they want to talk to me? They, they've got other things going on. Or even switching it where it's the college student saying, why would these people want to be with me? And I can sit here as plain as day and say, these people are longing for relationships that transcend the norm. In this room, at least, we're trying to do life together, which means that It doesn't matter how old you are, how young you are, what your story is, or what your background is. We want, in a sense, to to be there for one another without compartmentalizing and prioritizing and saying, these are the good ones, and these are the ones that don't deserve anything. It's completely antithetical to the gospel. And it's completely antithetical to, as we'll see next week, Jesus' ministry, where he wasn't hanging out with the religious elite. He was hanging out with the folks on the margins, the poor, the oppressed, the marginalized and there's something that we can learn there if we don't allow ourselves to limit what God can do. And then finally learning from Jesus. In this story we see Jesus as one who's able to identify the bigger issues in the life of the paralyzed guy. Saying this kingdom that I'm offering, it's bigger than healing. It's bigger than life as you know it. It's freedom. it's life, it's power, it's resurrection. When Jesus showed up, man, he, he kind of put the world on its, on its head a bit and he put the religious system on its head by announcing something that was very, 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 very different than what was going on at the time. I don't wanna perpetuate the problems that he saw back then by reducing this to a close your head, bow your head, uh, bow your heads, close your eyes, and raise a hand. I, I got that mixed up, CJ. Thank you. Yeah, I got that I got that wrong. Um, that moment of confession, where you say, "I'm in it. I'm following Jesus. I'm 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 going to forsake all else and and devote myself to to Jesus," is not just an entrance into heaven. It's a complete reorientation of life as you know it now, where you begin to see needs, and you begin to be Jesus for other people. There's a challenge to the church here where um, we, like Jesus, become advocates for justice and mercy, and we become agents of forgiveness and reconciliation, because that's what we've received, and there's nothing else that we can do but to share that good news. It's not a good news that's reduced to your sins are forgiven. That's a piece of it, but it's a, it's a good news that goes beyond you and me, and it goes into this, this idea of Jesus redeeming and restoring all things to himself. And we have the unique privilege to partner with him and to become agents of reconciliation and restoration and hope and forgiveness and life along with Jesus when we understand the power that he's demonstrating in this story and all throughout the gospel. Thanks for listening to this sermon from The Restoration Project. We hope you'll listen again as we continue through the Gospel of Mark. And join us as we gather to worship every Sunday at 5.30 p.m. at 1401 Camden Avenue. For more information on The Restoration Project, check out our website, RestoreSBY.org or look us up on Facebook and Twitter,